You are listening to Chaos on the Set, a chaotic TV and film review podcast. We have your usual crew reassembled today. My name's Shruti. I'm Mike. I'm Kate. And we also have a special guest joining us today, a return guest. I don't know if she's breaking any records. I have to go through our now Chaos on the Set guest history. But my twin sister, Shreya, who you've heard on our Succession reviews and our Everything Everywhere All at Once episode and also our House of the Dragon episode is now back to discuss Glass Onion. Shrey, thanks for coming back. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'll just throw the ball over to you first since you're our special guest. How did you feel about Glass Onion? I absolutely loved the movie. I watched it in theaters and I had so much fun throughout is the way I would describe it. I think it was there was parts of it that were actually laugh out loud funny. But aside from that, just the tone of the movie, I was really excited to watch another Knives Out mystery. And I thought that they executed really well. Awesome. Um, Kate, you watched the movie not in theaters. You watched it at home because... uh, I didn't realize it had come (laughs) out of the... I didn't even know it was doing an exclusive run. And I remember you guys were like, we saw Glass Onion in theaters. I'm like, great, I'm going to go in a few days. And you guys were like, Kate, it's not in theaters anymore. You have to wait till December. Let me me just say, before you get into it, Kate, I think a lot of people didn't realize that it was in theaters especially like I didn't, yeah especially didn't realize like, it was in theaters or didn't realize it was only in theaters for a week no didn't realize it was in theaters at all oh um, i knew people that knew it was in the- like my roommate who's in the industry was like oh yeah i really want to go see glass Onion." so she knew it was in theaters she just didn't realize it was only for a week i was like you know you need to go today or too. tomorrow or you're gonna miss it yeah and no, so i, I think feel like I, that should have been better advertised it was definitely it was definitely a bit of both i think either way people didn't realize but um recently now that it's on netflix i've been having conversations with people and they're like oh have you watched glass onion and i was like yeah i saw it in theaters and they're like like, it was in theaters i saw it months ago you bitch i mean granted i think we're all in tune with the the film scene more than the average person well obviously not kate (laughs) i'm not i I don't know why i'm on this podcast you guys (laughs) You are our levity. <laughs> but a lot of people did not Thanks. realize. Kate, how did you like watching the movie at home? I liked it. I watched it with my parents over the holidays. And I was a little scared at first. Just like, I don't know. I loved Knives Out. I remember seeing that in theaters and I thought that was so fun. And obviously I was worried like, okay, they're doing another one. I don't know, like, a a murder mystery is hard to follow up, you know? Mm -hmm. And I actually thought that they did a really good job. It was very different from the first one, um, but it still had that charm that I think made the first one really likable. And, yeah, I just thought it was a really solid movie, and I much preferred Daniel Craig playing a gay detective than James Bond, so... (laughs) Yeah, I'm hearing people on the internet call for so many Knives Out movies that he becomes well more known as Benoit Blanc than James Bond, which I would love. I've never seen Me a James too. Bond movie, though. I, I also, look, oh. I, love, I love Knives Out. I want more of them. I want this to be a multiple installment film franchise. Um, but I do want to give credit because, like, to me... Daniel Craig did a fantastic job as James Bond. I think overall, <laughs> the films that he made, the five of them, there were some misses, but 
most of the most of the time they were really good Bond films comparatively, and probably the best Bond since Sean Connery. So I do want to give him credit. He can be both. He can be James Bond and Benoit Blanc. It's not mutually exclusive. <laughs> I think one thing I realized more during this Knives Out movie than the original is that Benoit Blanc recognizes that he's putting on a Southern character. You know, when um, he first speaks, we can do spoilers. Yeah, full spoilers for Glass Onion. Yeah. <laughs> um, after we know that he knows that Janelle Monae is playing her twin sister, um, he, he says like, oh yeah, I'll get to the dock early. I'll put on a lot of Southern bullshit um and then when they need him to uh they need time for andy to be able to find the letter he again is said oh sorry not andy helen to find the letter he again says like oh i'll vamp so he knows that he's playing like a ridiculous detective southern character like the character himself knows that and i think that just makes him even more endearing to him that this is just like the way he chooses to think out loud and and talk and like put on a presentation of himself there was, after the first Knives Out came out, a Twitter campaign to have Benoit Blanc just do a completely different accent every single time with no explanation. And while I would have been a fan of that, I think Benoit Blanc is just, like, so lovable the way he plays this character that I wouldn't want them to, like, drastically change it each time. I like the Southern. Like, I, I think it. I think it's fun. You don't really have a lot of detectives who have a Southern accent. Usually it's British. <laughs> and it's great, um, too. I love how it's, like, over the top. Right. Like it's not he's mm-hmm. not trying to be subtle about it, which yeah. I think really plays into it and, and makes it adds to the levity of the film, makes it more enjoyable. While we're on the topic of loving Blanc, can we talk about his domestic partner, Hugh Grant, who makes an appearance in this film, which was maybe the best part of the movie for me what i love most about hugh grant's cameo though is that you hear him in the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. but you i don't didn't know it was him, him. <laughs> yeah and then there is this tweet about comparing glass onion to mamma mia and a venn diagram and the common thread <laughs> is that james bond is invited to a greek island by a stranger who wants to solve a mystery and the guy from bridget jones and love actually is also there so needed hugh grant <laughs> to fulfill that part of the venn diagram and for that i love his cameo <laughs> I've I've literally seen on Twitter, I had to explain to Shruti earlier what a fan cam is. A fan cam is a video where someone puts edits to music and it's just of like one person. It's just, it is just to music. That's like, all like it you, is. Like YouTube tribute videos that we used to watch back in the day, kind of. Um... No. Maybe it, they're shorter. They're okay. shorter and they're they're like made for Twitter and Instagram. And they like okay. flash they're, through photos flash of the person like one second, videos. two seconds at yeah. a time. Yeah. I, you know, funny enough, because I'm a big um, Formula One like racing fan. So I get a lot of content like on Twitter and Instagram related to Formula One. And there's yeah. a bit of crossover where... I do get that content. There's a lot of fan cams for the particularly yeah. handsome drivers that yeah, it, get a lot of attention. Fan, fan cams really started on Twitter with like K-pop idols. Um, and now they've really like, it's a mainstream thing to like make fan cams. And I saw a tweet of a fan cam of Hugh Grant in this film. But he's which in like all of seconds of yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was to music and it was just like him standing in the doorway but cut through like different expressions of him. <laughs> anyway. I, you know, I do hope though, like I loved seeing him in it and I hope in the next film, if there is one, 
uh, that he has an even heightened role. I would really love to see yeah. him be more of a character. For the record, there definitely will be a yeah, next that's film, what I Netflix thought. paper too. Okay. Um, I just want I just want more gay detective. I love him so much. <laughs> um, Mike, how was your theater experience? Was it packed? Were people really into it? What, yeah. You watched it in Syracuse, right? Yes, I did. It was probably um, it's probably the most packed theater experience I've had in Syracuse in a long time. Like when I uh, went to the Fablemans special event thing like that was packed down in New York City but in terms of like a Syracuse showing um, Knives Out or Glass Onion was definitely one of the most fun theater experiences I've had in a really long time just because it was so packed you could feel the energy in the room a lot of like boisterous laughter like laugh out loud funny there was one guy particularly a few rows in front of me that was like really losing it almost so much so to the point where it's kind of annoying but it was also kind of like funny um so the theater experience was was great um and i think we for the most part all of us that went had a really nice time um i went with my family like right around did your parents like it uh, they didn't go. No, I went oh. cousins and aunts and uncles and my grandmother did, came. Did the older generation like it? My grandmother did not. Oh, yeah, interesting. That, that, that kind of makes sense, though. Yeah, I no, think. she didn't. And she was. And then when it came out on Netflix, she's like, you know, we could have just watched this at home. And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, the point was to go to the theater. Some of us I, enjoy that experience. It was so much fun in the theaters. Like, our theater was also packed. The way, like, the music swells and the intro happens where they're, like, all playing that game together, you just get, you feel like you are yeah. at a party, you know? It's just very exciting and thrilling to be introduced in all these characters in this very fun way. There were jokes in the movie that, like, I particularly didn't think were so funny, but my theater was laughing so hard at it that I was like, I'm just having a fun time. Like, I'm yeah. very happy to be here. I would say, aside from Top Gun Maverick, it was probably my favorite theater experience and of like the year. And, like, when you I, when I rewatched it at home, like, I did not laugh as much. And I could tell I wasn't laughing as much because you don't yeah. have that energy around you. And when I rewatched it at home and, like, they sh- showed these beautiful shots of the island with, like, the great score playing, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember watching this in the theater and my heart racing and being so excited to be watching this with, like, a crowded theater. I watched it in New York City, by the way, so... <laughs> Different experiences. (laughs) So we have one New York, one LA, and one Syracuse theater experience, and one at home. We also got a voice note from somebody who also watched the movie at home, and she didn't like it to the point where I really feel like maybe watching this movie in theaters was a little integral to the joy, but I guess, Kate, you still really liked it, even though you watched it at home. Did both your parents like it, too? They both liked it, too, which is why I think if I had watched it alone... Maybe I wouldn't have liked it as much. Both my parents were laughing at stuff, and um, I thought that was a fun experience to watch it with other people, at least. I will say, and I didn't really think about this, but now that I'm piecing together all of the people that I know that did not like the film, besides my grandmother, all watched it at home. Really? Yes. Like, my brother, my aunt, my, my buddy in L.A., like, anyone I've heard that has a negative opinion of this film did not see it in theaters. I I will say, up until the twist where you find out that Andy's actually dead and it's Helen disguising as her, I was not liking it up until the twist. Like I just did not think it was very fun. I didn't like the characters. I thought it was slow. 
and then when the twist happened, I feel like it got a lot more fast-paced, and I was like, okay, now I'm finally, like, enjoying this, but it took me a while. That's so interesting. I feel like I prefer the first half a lot more, and I didn't dislike the second oh. half, but to me, it felt a little bit like, oh, we're telling the story that we've already yeah. watched again, but with a new light. The first part mm-hmm. when, like, all the new characters were introduced, I thought was very exciting. I thought the way the characters were introduced on the screen and had um, the images cut like the screen was cut between the two but not just like down the middle but it made fun shapes <laughs> i just i thought I mean, that yeah. was so fun kate hudson's character introduction of like her being a, in a party in the middle of covid and saying oh don't worry it's just my pod is like a perfect character introduction yeah. i i would say because i was at home i probably had more time and quiet to like think about it with not being in a crowded theater so i was i was watching I was doing a lot of, I think, overthinking mm-hmm. and comparing it to the first Knives Out and remembering how fast-paced that that had happened where, like, because we do wait pretty long for the murder to happen in this film, but in the first movie, it's, like, the opening scene. Yeah, so I think in I, the first Knives Out, the murder, you, you know about the murder within 20 minutes in. On yeah. this time code, 59 minutes into the movie, so a good hour into the movie is when Duke first dies. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we'll get more into the Knives Out Glass Onion comparisons later. I, we have one voice note from a listener who watched Glass Onion at home and didn't like it. Um, and I'm curious to hear what y'all think about her thoughts. Uh, so I love detective genre in general, mystery genre in general. But I felt like this was, I don't know, I didn't really like the whodunit format. And I didn't really realize, as I was watching it, I was like, there wasn't a lot of tension build up and I felt that because I think they were revealing a lot of the plot via the flashback and I didn't realize that's like what's characteristic of the whodunit form like style is that that has the double narrative and so once I got educated on that I just kind of concluded that the movie is just really a like a film is not the best format for a whodunit because there's just not enough time to build the tension and like guess like who did it because they're just revealing everything in the same time that you're watching it and there's no time for you as a viewer to like guess at what's happening which is what I felt I and that's why I really didn't enjoy Glass Onion at all no but I really think that's really interesting about like is like obviously there's so many murder mystery movies but it is a little harder I think you know with all the murder mystery series that have come out as of late people are more used to playing along on a week-to-week level and really engaging with it which in a sense she is right right like there isn't really that time to figure it out but I felt like I was still guessing along while while watching the movie like Janelle Monae's character literally writes out a clue board so we are Mm. almost playing the game with her trying to figure out who who done it, but did y'all feel like it was too rushed or you didn't get time to theorize? I think it's interesting that Anusha was talking about how this isn't a good format for a whodunit. And I think that these Knives Out movies, at least Glass Onion especially, is really like a genre of itself. It's not a mystery mm-hmm. in the traditional sense like Broad Church or other series is where it's more maybe fun to guess along. I thought this was really just a clue board as a movie, right? So the way they start by introducing all of the characters, so you're like, okay, it could be any of these people. Then they go to introducing all the motives and you understand why all of these people might have animosity towards them. Then they go through all the potential murder weapons. After someone's died, you notice that Duke's gun is gone. You notice that a knife is missing in the kitchen. So these kinds of things where you're like, oh, there's all of these potential 
ways in which the murder could be committed. And the movie even actually shows you that, right? There's like a flash of Kate Hudson holding a knife. That has never actually happened, but they're showing that it could have been Kate Hudson with a knife in the study, or it could have been Catherine Hahn with poison in the kitchen, or whatever the case might be. And it's, to me, not about guessing so much as much as just like laying out the plot in it is spoon feeding for sure but I think that's the fun of it that they're showing you they're laying out the mystery in a didactic way but in a fun way where you're like oh we don't know what's going on and this is we're just along for the ride yeah I think too sort of what gets maybe a bit convoluted in the film or or not necessarily convoluted because I really liked the way they structured it, but I think what maybe detracts from people's expectations of your typical whodunit is we're we're being led in several different directions, right? It's not really like one singular murder necessarily that we're trying to solve. You have Duke's murder, but then also there's that portion of the film where you actually think, Helen is dead and then you also are misdirected again and then you're trying to figure out who killed Cassandra in her home and I mean obviously it all comes back to Edward Norton and it is just one suspect but you do have several different um, deaths and and fake deaths rolled into one and I think maybe that is also what throws people a little bit and then also the fact that like it ends up being Edward Norton in the end to some people I've heard was a bit disappointing because it's like, wow, the maybe the most obvious guy, like the the person who it makes but the most that's sense the to glass pin it on. Onion. You I know that's it's confusing, yeah. but it's really clear. At the no, that's the, the point, and that's and that look, that's not my opinion. I'm just representing. Right, right, right. I think what the. Uh, you know, what the criticism is for what people were looking out of this film. Like, if you went into the film and you're not necessarily, like, thinking about what is the commentary of The Glass Onion, what's the meaning behind this murder, um, and you're just like, oh, I wanted a really good whodunit that's going to surprise me in the end and I'm never going to see it coming from a mile away, then, you know, maybe this wasn't the film for you. But the way I look at it, I think the way Rian Johnson wrote it, or is it Ryan Johnson? Whatever. I think it's Ryan. I think it's Ryan, but I say Rian. Like it's spelled Rian. Let's oh call God. him Rian. Um, I'm just I'm gonna stick with it. Uh, the way Rian Johnson wrote it, um, it's like it's like Denisville knew all over again. But basically, the way he wrote it, I think, really takes the mystery whodunit genre and turns it upside down on Absolutely. its head, which I think is great because if you came into this just expecting another Knives Out movie, it's not what you got. Oh, I mean, that's why I would, I mean, I would kind of argue that this movie is less a mystery genre and more of a social commentary movie. Oh, 100%. Like, I don't really think there even is that much of an exciting mystery in this film at all, which I, I was a little disappointed about because in the first one, there actually is a very elaborate mystery. Yeah, that it's had complicated. Me guessing. It was very complicated and had me guessing a lot which so I can actually understand people's just to go I guess a little bit against your opinion Mike I do understand why people might have been upset going into this film because they saw the first film which was a was a whodunit mystery it really a was fantastic this one was, mystery and this one kind of dumped the elaborate mystery and went what if it's just social commentary and 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 what if we take this one kind of metaphorical thing about the glass onion and really like hit home with it yeah and it was good in different ways but it's definitely not a 
I would argue it's not really a mystery movie at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and I think I think yeah. in a I think you're right, Kate, and I think it's self aware of that, right? Like at the end, yeah. um, like I understand people being like, Oh, it's just Ed Norton in the end, that's not very interesting. But then they even have Kate Hudson's character, Birdie J, say, Oh my god, it's so dumb, it's genius. And then Ben Blanc says, No, it's just dumb. And I think that's like a very I love that line because I think that's like a big criticism of the way we interpret like wealthy people that Edward Norton might be a standard for for sure. But also just like uh, making that commentary on the movie itself, I thought was very clever and funny. Yeah, I also yeah, think movies don't usually do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I also think to a certain extent, right? It could be a commentary on the audience as well, whether intended or not, um, because we see so often nowadays with. Uh, more so I would say shows where it's like appointment viewing week after week there's so much theorizing that goes on we just saw most recently with White Lotus but I feel like it's been going on for years the first uh, um, memory I could really pin down of this theorizing is like the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones whereas like people read into it so much us included that was like it. It almost felt like the plot was ruined by the time you got to the episode, um, and it's like same thing just happened recently with Rings of Power. I was trying to avoid so much stuff because it's just like people going down every single rabbit hole, and I love that it's just like no, it's not as deep as any of that. It's like everything as it appears right on the surface. So I loved that aspect of it as well. Kate, I'm curious about what you were saying earlier about how you didn't love the movie in the first half and you weren't that into the characters. We have another voice note that kind of echoes um, that same thought that you had. I'm curious what you think about this take. Like in the first 20 minutes, I knew I wouldn't like it. Um, When they introduced Ed Norton as like the fake Elon Musk, basically, like... It was very tropey. That's not a character. Yeah, that's a trope. Like, Elon Musk already exists. Now they're just pretending to be him. And then, like, there were several other people who were like that. The meathead right-wing guy. Like, oh, you know. that That's a, it's not a character. <laughs> so, I mean, like, at the end of the day, they are a little flat. You know what I mean? Like, there's, yeah, no, oh, there's nothing sure. more to do. Um, it didn't really bother me as much because all of these people... Are the are flat in the same way? You know, they're just so into their thing. I guess um, Lionel and um, Catherine Hahn's character are different in the sense that they're a little bit more. They seem a little bit more self aware about the world. Um, but did it bother y'all that they were just, for lack of a better word, flat? Even though I don't really think they're flat. I should also say that um, Ryan Johnson said it's not Elon Musk. It's like the general. I, yeah, and I didn't think of him as Elon Musk. Like, I definitely thought he was dumb. Like, Elon Musk is dumb. Mm-hmm. And I think Elon Musk has, like, really outed himself as an idiot recently, which makes it easy for us to be like, oh, this guy that's wealthy but yeah. is actually yeah. an idiot is just Elon Musk. But- and people have to keep in mind, too, that this was written and directed and made long before right. the Twitter takeover happened. Like, a lot of, like, Elon Musk, especially in the last several months, is is been all over the place yes exactly (laughs) um yeah i mean i i disagree i to a certain extent i understand like sure maybe it's a little bit obvious but um you know after all like it is a social commentary i think any social commentary is going to sort of like walk the line of being you know like tropey if you will um but 
you know, you could look into every character and I don't think you could definitively say, oh, this person is this guy, right? Like you could take a look at Dave Bautista's character, Duke, right? He's maybe a little bit of Alex Jones. He's a little bit of Joe Rogan. You know, he's a little bit of uh, these right-wing January 6 people, insurrectionists. Like, I think every character has those layers to them, and that's why, personally, it didn't bother me. Like, you, like Catherine Hahn, she could be any politician. It's not like yeah. you're looking at her saying, oh, there's Nancy Pelosi. You don't know. It could be anybody. <laughs> I think Catherine Hahn should play a version. This is a little exploring the multiverse, but we're not doing that segment today. So sneaking it in here, I want Catherine Hahn to be in the same universe as Parks and Rec. And so she's the same politician. Mm. Oh, so good. So good. Although she's a little bit more on top of her shit in Parks and Rec. So I guess this has to be a prequel to Parks and Rec. I don't know. Yeah, now in this one, she needs a... Miles' money, whereas in Parks and Rec, she's so much money. She charges like a million dollars an hour. I mean, I don't know if I would call them one-dimensional, but I do agree with him that it was definitely a little cringy at first (laughs) when all these people started getting introduced because, like, yes, it it is kind of funny to be like, yeah, here's the politician, here's the men's right activist, here's the dumb billionaire... But, like, it's, it was almost, like, so on the nose of, like, today's kind of, like, 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 today's kind of, like, internet discourse that at first I was, like, oh, Jesus. And I don't think my dad understood it. My mom understood it as much. So I was kind of, like, oh, God, at some points. And they were, like, oh, why is that, like, cringy for you, you know? Um, like, I, 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 I will argue, yeah, like, at first. A little bit. Like, like it was fun, but it was also, like, cringe. Like, the Among Us scene, too. Fun, but cringe. Like, <laughs> I, it's it, it's weird when a movie hits on social, like, memes or, or like, personalities or whatever, like, a little bit too on the nose. It can, it can be a little, it can take you out of the film a little bit. I liked the COVID, re- COVID era references <laughs> in the film. A lot, actually. And I think there's not a time and a place... In, in every film for COVID references. I think, by and large, probably most films should avoid the subject. But I really liked how they handled weaving it into the sort of social commentary when, with this film. And again, I think it just goes to show, like, this film's not taking itself too seriously, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. it's a product of, of here and now. It's a, it's a story. It's a mystery. There's going to be another one, you know, like we're going to move on. It doesn't have to be this this grand thing. I I absolutely agree, Mike. I loved the COVID stuff personally. I thought you heard it here. Shreya loves COVID. I just thought it (laughs) did a great job of putting the viewer in a point in time like the Among Us, it like reminded me of, you know, early 2020, the way Catherine Hahn first opens the door and forgets to have a mask on and then just like puts her hair in front of her face like mm-hmm. that does anything. Just like all of these moments, Birdie saying, oh, don't worry, they're in my pod. Um, I think having all of those details put the viewer in a, put me at least in a, in a point in my life that it, I felt like I was in that space again. And then they got rid of it for the for the island stuff. They like put you in that point in time, and they're like, "All right, now we're gonna do this dumb gun thing, and we're gonna pretend COVID doesn't exist anymore." And yeah. I thought that and it's way like of handling it was I, great. we're at the point now where I think like you can look back to the the early days of COVID when we were all trying to figure it out, and we were all going 
through those those similar motions, right? Like there's a lot of things there that mirrored reality, which I think yeah. is which I think is great. And you know, just also considering the timing again of of when they made this, like I referenced uh, uh, earlier with the Elon Musk um, similarities in in that sort of they they made the film before all of this new stuff came out. It really reminds me of the last season of Veep. I don't, did any of you watch Veep? Yeah, love the Veep. last season of Veep. Sort of like in line with the Trump rise to presidency. Like there were literal like scandals and fuck ups in the show that were so close to reality that the creators were like, we wrote this ahead of time. Like right. they, they <laughs> predicted what happened. It was not vice versa. It wasn't like they were just reusing what reality was. Um, and so I, I, it mirrors it in that sense, I, I think as well. Um, and I think it, it towed the right line without being too much, right? Like if they just kept beating it over the head the whole time, fine. But it was really, I think, more so in the intro. And then when we got to the island, it was game on. It's it's a really risky thing to do, especially when you're har- making people harken back to a time that maybe they didn't, you know, probably was not the best year of their lives. Mm-hmm. When it started, I got super, like, when it said March 2020 or May 2020, whatever it says, one, mm-hmm. a month that starts with M2020, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> like, who, who wants to be put back into that time? And I was getting a little nervous. I know a lot of people who didn't love the coat, like, I think it, they didn't like the reminder and it just felt like such a specific point in time that like how long can this movie live you know if somebody a decade from now who is I don't know 13 right now watched it when they're 23 how will they feel about it I think it is interesting what different shows how different shows are treating COVID like Succession decided to say COVID didn't exist in that world because um, Jesse Armstrong's whole thing about it is that it didn't affect the rich people, so we're just going to pretend it didn't happen, and I really, really respect that. And then there's other shows like uh, Gossip Girl, the reboot, which nobody should watch. It's terrible. But they, <laughs> it's what is especially weird is that when it came out, they're like, oh, yeah, back during COVID, and it came out during, like, the huge Delta wave, so they're talking as if COVID was over, but it wasn't over, and that, I think, was the worst way to possibly do it. Mm-hmm. Um, this, yeah, I think, was- struck a good balance. There was one show. What was the one where they all work in, like, basically what is a Walmart, but it's, like, a fake Walmart? Superstore? Super yeah, Superstore did that for their, like, their... I think... Th- is that show over? I don't even know. Ended, but their yeah. last season... Yeah, their last season, they all had masks on, like, for all the filming. And in, and in a sense, like, it does help because then you can get through COVID protocols where actors are wearing masks well, on Well, yeah, but, that, but then that's where I'm, like, well, this movie, they just did it to kind of just be, like, cheeky because they didn't, you know, like, they didn't need to say, oh, yeah, it was during COVID, like, because clearly then they then they took that special thing that you shoot in your mouth. Oh, that sounds bad. I'm sorry, but you know what I mean. And then, <laughs> and then magically they're, like, COVID's not a thing anymore, guys. Come on, my island. Like, that, to me, was, like, a little dumb, but then I'm, like, well, the point of this movie is to say that everything is dumb. Nothing is actually... I, so, loved, I, mean, I, don't know. I loved the Ethan Hawke cameo. <laughs> Come on. Oh, I oh. <laughs> I, wait, was he the one shooting? The- yeah. Yeah, you, you don't know Ethan Hawke? Yeah. He no, went I, to my I, elementary school. He did. Oh, really? They, they had him... No, I knew that he was in the film. I just didn't know where he was. I had... I... For, like I, I knew we had a cameo, but I was like, "Wait, where'd that happen?" Because they listed him as efficient man. <laughs> <laughs> I did not realize that. And um, I heard that um, he was just filming Moon Knight nearby, and uh, Ryan Johnson was like, 
hey, come be in my movie really quick. <laughs> That's awesome. I love that. What do you think about it just being like a celebrity studded? I love it. I, I love it because it, it has fun. I think it adds to the fun. Like I said, the film isn't taking itself too seriously. There's there's a bit of levity as opposed to maybe some other films where they're like, oh, we're just going to jam pack every person in here for the sake of doing it, for the sake of saying we have all of these people in it. You know, like there's I think there's a huge difference between like a 30 second cameo in not seeing the person coming as opposed to, um, you know, a film that is putting names on its casting for the sake of doing it. And then you don't get enough time with those characters and you and you're like, I, I wanted more of that person. Oh, I will say the like they did use their cameos in really clever ways, like as much as they cr- maybe cringed internally at the Among Us scene. Them getting, like, Stephen Sondheim and Angela Lansbury, like, rest in peace, both of them. But getting, like, the mystery greats to play Among Us with a detective was actually really clever and funny. And then Natasha Lyonne, who's also on that Zoom, is Mm going to be in Ryan Johnson's upcoming murder mystery show on Peacock, uh, Poker Face. Oh, God. Um, Don't forget about Kareem. Yeah, who starred in the murder mystery film Fletch. Hadn't heard of it, but again, they're not just cameos for cameo's sake. They have an attachment to the murder mystery genre. Speaking of these cameos and other references in the movie that we might have missed, we had a great conversation with our friend Sivvy, who is way more... uh, for lack of a better word, online, I think, than any of us. So she's able to break down more of the references in Gossanian that might have went over our head. Well, let's let her take it away. Sivi, thank you so much for joining us. You definitely, I feel like, know more online and pop culture references than I am aware of. So I'm really, I'm really grateful to have your insight on this podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Let's let's just jump right into it. Do you have a particular Easter egg or reference in this movie that stood out to you as one of your favorite things that Ryan Johnson did for Glass Onion? One of my favorite things that he did was the use of Apple products because for the press release or the press tour for Knives Out, Ryan Johnson basically revealed that Apple has a product placement policy um, where they'll give a movie production iPhones or other Apple products to use, but they don't allow any bad guys to use their products. Um, and so because he revealed that with Knives Out, he was kind of in this dilemma with Glass Onion in terms of what technology to use. And he also wrote in the use of an Apple product. So when Benoit Blanc is hearing about the murder mystery that Miles is setting up, he asks if there's going to be a prize and he specifically gave oh. an iPad. <laughs> he didn't have to say iPad. He didn't have to say an Apple product, but that's what Ryan Johnson went with. So he's making sure that Apple products are being used in this movie. Um, and he ends up getting, Benoit Blanc ends up getting an iPad, but we never actually see Miles holding the iPad. So Edward Norton is actually off of the screen when he's tossing the iPad onto the screen. Oh my God, that's crazy. <laughs> so that's the way Johnson works around that particular issue in order to make sure that an Apple product is still used and people who are searching for that detail can't use it to figure out who the murderer is. What a fun way to play. Because I remember that thing going viral about how like 
nobody people in knives out have iphones and chris evans sorry spoilers for knives out does not have an iphone um <laughs> so i love how he uh, the other characters are good people no, but i guess they didn't commit murder so <laughs> better people so but you were also telling me earlier about um i thought it was so funny the way they used masks to you know discuss everyone's personality the funniest fun for me is uh birdie kate hudson's character who has a basically non-existent mask and that's a reference to something else right Zibi? yeah so this hasn't been confirmed but it also hasn't been denied <laughs> uh so the mask that birdie is wearing is essentially this mesh mask that's like a little glittery a little bedazzled there's nothing to protect you from the viral load that's coming out of Birdie's mouth. Like it's completely <laughs> useless. Um, and that reminded me a lot of this mask that Lana Del Rey wore when she was meeting fans and taking pictures in October of 2020. So before there was a vaccine publicly available, she was just out here with a very, very useless mask. <laughs> Um, and she later on said that it was actually totally fine because there was a plastic covering on the inside that people just couldn't see and uh. everyone is being super dramatic. <laughs> um, but I really like that that nod to Lana Del Rey, whether or not it's intentional, because in my opinion, Lana's a pretty controversial figure and she's done some not so likable stuff in the past like she's been criticized for glamorizing abuse in her songs she once defended the lack of diversity in one of her album covers by saying something like my best friends are rappers I've oh dated God. rappers <laughs> oh, no. um, and then the most egregious thing she's done in my opinion is that she released a statement about how all of these female singers, and she names them, and they're mostly women of color, how they all sing about how they're having sex and they're like half naked and they are just like super flirty and everything. And she said, because other artists are doing that, particularly female artists, she should be able to go back to like her old content, which is like old Hollywood glamour type of feeling. Um, and she lists all of these artists and then she concludes her statement by saying that she donates to Native American foundations and then she plugs her upcoming poetry book. So it just <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense what she's saying. And a lot of it just falls really poorly and looks really bad for her. And I think that's very similar to Birdie, who thinks that she's this purveyor of truth who stands up against this backlash kind of culture and and says what needs to be said when in reality she misses the point entirely and refuses to engage with criticism so they're just very very similar people in their public personas yeah I love that Benoit Blanc line don't confuse speaking without thought with speaking the truth I feel like that was like a great encapsulation um we were talking a little bit about how this movie feels more like a social commentary than a murder mystery earlier and I, I think that that is a great encapsulation of that sure you were also telling me earlier about while we we're talking about Bernie's mask how each mask kind of symbolizes the character that they are like how Catherine Hahn's mask keeps falling down and she like has a little bit more of a disheveled life you know Blanc is wearing a cloth mask that the CDC would approve of Dave Batista's character is not wearing a mask at all so very interesting um you know character exposition done just through mask usage and then they get rid of them completely through a sanitary gun which i don't know if you agree Sivi. it could be a reference to the cdc trying to tell people not to eat cleaning supplies <laughs> to avoid getting covid um but hopefully this doesn't perpetuate that theory that that, that works 
And I love the, oh, can we hug? I don't know. Can we hug? Like, it just was like so peak COVID random, like lines that people would say. I don't know when or how it started. I just know that Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Noah Sagan, both actors, are longtime Ryan Johnson collaborators. And with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he's kind of meant to be an Easter egg that you're supposed to find um, in Knives Out and Glass Onion, where he's not visually appearing on screen, but his audio is on in the movie. And then Noah Sagan is actually acting in both movies. So in Knives Out, he played a trooper or a police officer. And in this movie, he plays a house guest. And also, sorry, in Knives Out, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is the voice of the reporter uh, of the like news report that Anna the Armas' character was listening to. And in this movie, he voices the dong, which I think is so creative um, and also a great way to exposit time passing in a movie where you don't want to be like, it's been another hour. Um But I read this interesting thing online, um, an interview with Ryan Johnson with Entertainment Weekly saying that Daryl, Norris Egan's character, who's a guest of the house, is kind of supposed to be a red herring styled after Cato Kalin, a witness in the O.J. Simpson trial who happened to be staying at the Simpsons guest house the night of the murders. Ryan Johnson said the notion of having Cato Kalin type guy who's hanging out on the island uh, just to get Noah in there and hanging out with us in Greece. I'll never pass up an opportunity like that. So good buddy, Ryan Johnson, just letting his friends um, come to Greece on Netflix's dime. But um, how do you feel about that uh, Cato Kalin analogy? I loved it. I didn't pick up on it when I was watching the movie. I only realized it when you specifically told me about it. Um, (laughs) But I think it's really, really cool because Kato Kalin is like the most famous house guest ever. Um, and so it makes so much sense that Ryan Johnson would use that in the movie. Um, and it also makes sense that it would fly over my head because I wasn't alive during the <laughs> OJ trial. Uh, but I'm sure a massive amount of the audience was. And he, even though he was not a key witness, he was a pretty minor witness. He became this huge presence and he became a star. There was one point where a survey found that 74% of Americans could identify Cato Kaling in a photo, but only 25% could identify Vice President Al Gore. Like that's how much people knew him. And I think it serves as a really good example of the way that Ryan Johnson can make something that has so much mass appeal, where someone my age might not get the reference, but someone 10 or 20 years older is going to pick up on it right away and feel super pulled in and engaged in the movie. Um, And it's fun to have those kinds of things that aren't necessary to understanding the plot, but spark that little bit of joy while you're watching the movie. And then the other thing that I think it serves a purpose for and this might be me really really reading into it but i feel like it's a small indication of how the murder case in the movie is going to be handled both in public opinion and legally because for me the oj case is an illustration of how rich people can really get away with anything even alleged murder Um, and a victim can be entirely forgotten about by the legal system and by public discourse Like there are so many jokes about O.J. Simpson these days. There are movies, documentaries about the trial, about the events following, but there's not that much about the two people who were actually murdered. And the whole movie, Glass Onion, is a critique or a commentary on wealth at all these different levels with each character representing you know, a certain type of wealth. Even in my opinion, Peg, the assistant, represents a certain type of wealth and power. Um, And at the end of the movie, we don't get this like cathartic justice has been served 
moment like we do in Knives Out where Ana de Armas is in her new mansion and she's literally looking over the family that figuratively looked over her for most of her time there. Instead, in Glass Onion, we're getting something more similar to the OJ trial where there's no legal justice that's going to be served because there's no proof really that um, Miles stole the idea or that Miles potentially killed or we know that he killed um, (laughs) Janelle Monae's character. And he's not really going to go to prison because the rich are exempt from the rules of the legal system. So instead we have to settle for this like slight destruction of public image. But even with that slight destruction, not much is going to happen. Like he's probably going to be okay in the same way that OJ is still okay. He was acquitted. He still is out here making TikToks of him golfing and talking about how he is not the father of Khloe Kardashian, which is a separate rumor. But anyways, <laughs> um, he's doing just fine. And I think that by having this OJ reference in the movie, Ryan Johnson is kind of saying like, yeah, we solved the murder and you know who it is, but there, there's no good feeling at the end of it, you know? Yeah, I like that a lot. I think uh, in general, the way they show Miles as like a criticism of these wealthy idiots, I thought was like really well done. Um, you know, Miles is this person who whose wealth and success has blinded him so much that he like literally cannot accept when people say no to him. Um, and I picked up on that more uh, rewatching it this past weekend, how when, um, you know, people tell him that they're going to leave, that they don't want to stay on the island, they're going to leave the next day. He just says, oh, no, 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 you're staying, you're staying. Like he just doesn't even ever process that um, things aren't going to go the way he wants them to, to the point where he literally needed Helen, Janelle Monet's character, to explain to him that his new hydro fuel was no longer going to become a thing since it just burned the Mona Lisa. Like he's still walking down the stairs of his mansion. It's like, oh, okay, you did nothing. And they're like, no, you're screwed now. And he just can't get that through his head. Yeah, definitely. I also, just before we wrap up, wanted to, uh, you know, wrap things up by talking about the title of the movie, Glass Onion. I, When the title was originally announced, I was like, I didn't know it was a Beatles song. So I was like, that's super random. But what I kind of love about it is, you know, when Knives Out came out, it was kind of a more scrappy movie. You know, uh, it wasn't based on any previous IP. It was just like, hopefully these stars and the murder mystery appeal can sell this movie. And so, you know, it had to be titled Knives Out exactly what it is to, you know, basically get the intrigue get the audience intrigued whereas in this situation it's just so random like when the title glass onion came out I was like well that's bonkers but it is way more attached to what this movie is like obviously after you watch the movie it's a very obvious title for the movie but it it, it has its own intrigue without you know painting the picture exactly what the movie is to the audience yeah I personally really like the the glass onion metaphor you know the entire movie is like commenting on like Birdie J, you can't just say things and expect them to be considered true. Um, Miles's wealth and things like that. And the line in particular where they say, um, it's so dumb, it's genius. And Benoit Blanc says, no, it's just dumb. So I like this analogy of, you know, you think it's like this layered, interesting mystery, but actually it's very clear to the center and straightforward. <laughs> clear pun intended well it's funny because ryan johnson didn't so the full title of the movie as obviously i should say is (laughs) glass onion a knives out mystery ryan johnson originally didn't want to include the 
uh, a Knives Out mystery part of it, he told The Atlantic, I tried very hard to make them self-contained. Honestly, I'm a little pissed out that I have to have a Knives Out mystery in the title, you know, because I just want it to be called Glass Onion. I don't know. I don't understand why he needs them to be that self-contained because you do have one common thread throughout all of the movies, Benoit Blanc. So you might as well also use the title to make it a common thread. But I like I like that it's all tied together, but still like it can have its own individual title. So nobody's calling it Knives Out 2, but it's still tied to the Knives Out franchise. Sibby, did you call it Glass? Do you call it Knives Out 2? I I have referred to it as a sequel before, but upon reflection, I would retract <laughs> those statements. I I wish that it didn't have the Knives Out like tagline in it because I feel like it's such a different movie it's not the same kind of whodunit murder mystery of knives out like you guys were saying it's more of a social commentary and it feels very distinct from knives out itself and I think part of the reason that I didn't like it as much as I should have is because I was expecting something so similar to knives out and because of those expectations not being met I left the theater a little bit disappointed but then on my second watch when I was like I'm not gonna try and expect the exact magic of Knives Out, I felt a lot better about it. So, I mean, I I get wanting to add that Knives Out mystery line because then people know for sure, like, this is what was from Knives Out and they know, you know, Daniel Craig is going to be in there and there's going to be a murder. Those simple things make sense. Um, But I kind of think I side with Ryan Johnson. Wow. Wow. Bold move. (laughs) I know. Brave of me. Okay. So obviously art is pretty important in the movie. The Mona Lisa is referenced a lot and there's just a massive amount of super expensive art all throughout um, Miles's house to just show how wealthy he is. Um, One of the pieces of art is a Rothko painting. So Mark Rothko was this Latvian American abstract painter who is best known for having these paintings of like irregular rectangular shapes of color that he created as a response to the tragedy of World War II. And they're meant to evoke like really emotional responses from people. Um, However, Miles has it in his house hanging upside down, which might be an easy mistake for someone who has a print in their house and they're just, you know, putting it up for the first time. But he's supposed to be a genius and he's paid something like millions of dollars to have this in his Greek island. And he's not even making sure that it's put up the right way, which is just another way to illustrate how ridiculously stupid he is. He also, um, you know, name drops the Gone Girl author. He says, I hired Gillian Flynn to write that mis- murder mystery, but her name is pronounced Gillian Flynn. So, yes, lots of little tidbits. I and see. Yeah, to show us that he is an idiot. <laughs> okay, so we thank you so much for joining us. Before we wrap things up, do you want to share where people can find more of you and your voice online? Thank you so much for having me. People can find me on my Substack. It's Versace, V-E-R-S-A-T-C-H-I dot Substack dot com. I release stuff every week and I hope you will subscribe. Awesome. Thank you so much. One concern of mine when I was re-watching the movie on Netflix after it dropped was how, you know, Dave Batista's Batista's character dies an hour into the movie, and then less than 20 minutes later, 
um, we have Andy quote unquote die. She gets shot and pretends to be dead. And then we do this flashback. And then we, the flashback takes around 20 minutes. And then after that, we basically retread the whole movie again now with this new information, which is fun, right? Because you're now seeing it now through Andy's perspective and, or I guess Helen's perspective and everything that happened. But it made me a little worried, like, how much can you rewatch this movie when you basically, in the movie, you watch the movie twice? Like, do you think it's going to start getting boring after third and fourth watches? I asked one of my friends who I went to see Glass Onion with him in theaters. He had already seen it. He saw it at, a, like, a pre-screening. So it was the second time when we watched it in theaters. And he's now watched it a third time at home. And he's like, it does not get old. It's still so fun. I still laugh at all the jokes. So maybe I'm just, you know, this is not a legitimate concern. But what do y'all think? I'm I'm kind of with you. Um, although I will say, like, a lot of the letterboxed reviews that I've read, people say the same thing where they're like, I still, I'm having so much fun with this. I rewatch it. I love it just as much, if not even more so. Um, you know, my experience rewatching, it wasn't necessarily the same. I still had a ton of fun with it. Um, and I think it's a great film. But, you know, there's definitely this kind of film. I think there's maybe something, it's not as special as the first time you watch it. So I do think it loses a little bit upon a rewatch, but I still had fun with it. And, you know, I don't think every film necessarily is meant to be rewatched or needs to be rewatched. Like some films are better to just watch it once and savor that experience or at least like revisit it, you know, years down the line. I think that's the other thing too. Like I rewatched it six weeks later. Um, mm-hmm. It's still fresh in my mind, right? So um, it wasn't act- it wasn't the same, but I still really enjoyed it and um, and that's fine. Um, I think the fun of it being on Netflix uh, is kind of great because you can pause and point things out. Shay and I were rewatching the movie together and uh, Miles secretly takes Duke's phone, right, when they're looking for the phone and where is it? And you can basically, when he runs to the other side because he's pretending to be um, worried that somebody's going to murder him, you can see it very clearly in his back pocket. Or like even the, you know, you can see him hand Duke his own drink. So in that sense, um, it is fun to rewatch and point those things out, but after like the fourth and fifth time i don't know how much fun that will actually be yeah that's where i'm at too i do want to rewatch it again to find all those things that they mentioned and and see if the first half of the movie is more enjoyable because i know now what's going on and i know there's like a i know that like helen is andy and all that stuff but and, and then the whole their whole theme is it was in plain sight but he just said something else to make us think something else whatever right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but i think after i feel like by the third watch i don't think i'd really be thrilled to rewatch this movie i don't know like it because reasons i when i rewatch movies it's because usually because i just love the character arc so much or i just found like the scenes just so delightfully fun even though i know what's gonna happen but with this one i don't really think that's gonna be the case for me See, that's I will actually, say when it, sorry yeah. i was just gonna say like that's what i enjoyed the most about the rewatch was the characters like i love every single character oh, in this movie i actually love these characters more than oh, i love the characters in knives out um oh i oh my gosh okay i thought you were gonna say top gun for no, no. I, almost, I, almost I thought you were gonna say lord of the rings <laughs> oh no How, don't yeah. even don't even joke about that That's i thought you were gonna funny. say pinocchio <laughs> no um no but i did i did like these characters in in this cast better than the the cast from knives out and like thinking back to it now 
about Knives Out. The really the only thing I remember about Knives Out. How many years has it been? Three, like three or four. Three. Um, mm-hmm. The only thing I remember about Knives Out is that is Chris Evans did it and his sweater. Like that's the only <laughs> recollection I have of Knives Out. And I actually really wanted to rewatch it prior to Glass Onion, and then I was like, "What the fuck? It's not on Netflix," <laughs> which I don't understand. Netflix does yeah. well. So Lionsgate distributed Knives Out. So. Uh, it's technically on Amazon Prime for purchase, but it's not on Netflix. Netflix paid $450 million for the second and the third movie, but they don't own the first movie. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. But I do think, like, a few years from now, I think I can, you know, rewatch Glass Onion and probably enjoy it a, a bit more than I did on my most recent rewatch. My only other concern about this movie, and again, I really, really love the movie, even these little things that, you know, poke at my head as slight flaws. Overall, I think it was still just a joyous and great experience. But the twist is, right, that, like, Miles, Ed Norton's character, was behind it the whole time, which relies him very heavily on acting, like, oh, somebody's trying to murder me, who's trying to murder me, even though he knows that nobody's trying to murder him. And also the twist that, you know, Andy, or sorry, Helen, the twin, Janelle Monet's character, invited Benoit Blanc to the island. So Benoit Blanc is acting like he thought he was invited, even though he wasn't really invited. It's fine, but it, you do have to kind of suspend disbelief and believe that be- both Benoit Blanc and uh, Ed Norton have, their characters are incredible actors that can just like pull off these ruses. Which, by the way, I will just say I thought... Edward Norton gave a fantastic performance in this film. Uh, probably his best performance in in a while, just because I feel like maybe he hasn't been getting the best film roles as of late. Um, both him and Janelle Monet, I thought, were were fantastic, along with the rest of the cast. The rest, I think, like Kate Hudson is like a dark horse MVP of the film. Um, everybody did. Everybody did great, but I Edward Norton really jumped off the screen for me. Well, since we're on the topic of the cast and, you know, your favorites, I think this is a great time to pivot to our with and and game. It's been a minute since we played this, actually. We didn't play it for Top Gun Maverick, but I'll use Top Gun Maverick as an example while we explain the game. When you go through the credits for a certain movie, especially when it's a stack cast like this, you can add a little special distinction for very special actors in the movie. Uh, For example, in Top Gun Maverick, uh, with the... Sorry, for example, in Top Gun Maverick, they go through the whole cast list, and at the end it says, with Ed Harris and Val Kilmer, so they get, you know, a little extra special credit for that movie. Curious, this is, like, a very stacked cast. It's, I think this is probably the hardest this is a tough version one. of the game we've played. Um, do you guys want a hint, or should, should nah. I just let... Okay. Well you, well, you have to tell us how many with and ands there There's are. There's one with credit and one and credit, and if you really want to, you know, make it a little interesting, there's also a... Um, special appearance by credit. Oh, okay. I know the special appearance. Yeah, (laughs) it's pretty obvious. Right, it's Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Oh, no, it's not. I mean, maybe it is. Sorry, fuck you, Grant. You, okay, sorry. I'm not going to respond anymore. You guys cast your guesses. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was the dong. The hourly dong. Okay, the with an and. Oh, this is tough. I'm going to say with... It's tough because it's like, I don't think it's tough because they're all main characters. Yeah. Like, yeah. normally it's somebody who's more like on the side, like Ed, Ed Harris and Val Kilmer were in Top Gun. Um, I'm going to say with 
Edward Norton, and Kate Hudson. I don't know. I don't feel confident in that answer. I'll guess with Kate Hudson and Janelle Monet. Hmm. And who's the? Sorry, y'all have to guess the special. And I'll guess special guest. Well, it's Kate already said it was Hugh Grant. I'm just guessing. Uh, it's Hugh Grant. Come know. on. It's got to be Hugh Grant. Know. Or is it Yo-Yo Ma? Yeah, if y'all miss Yo-Yo Ma is in or uh, Ethan Hawke. Birdie's pod. You know, for the sake of being different, I'll say Ethan Hawke. But I okay. I think Kate's right on Hugh Grant. All right, Kate. Your special appearance by is Hugh Grant. Who is your with and your and? And just looking at the cast, I'm trying to I'm just looking at the credits. I'm just looking at the credits. Um... I don't know if, like, this would be a stupid guess, but, like... Nothing more stupid than guessing with Edward Norris. (laughs) I'm going to do something... No, there's something stupider. Um, I'm going to say with uh, David Bautista. I think Dave Bautista is a Because he he dies, because he dies early. That's true. So he's not really in it. That's a good guess. And then I'm going to say, and... Okay, this might be dumb. Because he's the main character, but and Daniel Craig, maybe they wanted to give him like oh. more elevation, and they were like he's like the detective, and everyone else is like. Yeah, also, yeah, to defend incredible. to defend my Edward Norton guess that you just slandered <laughs> the fuck out of. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, a with credit is usually somebody who deserves distinction but isn't like the character, and in in the top billing in this is Daniel Craig, so I thought maybe. We get and Edward Norton. Yeah. Or with Edward Norton, whatever. Um, No, Ed Norton is actually credited quite early in the credit order. It's it's surprising. I was shocked by this. I even had a friend text me, I have an issue with the with. Is it with Leslie Odom Jr.? It is with Kate Hudson. Woo! Sure! I got that. I got that. And you said and. (laughs) Okay. And Dave Bautista. Uh, special appearance by, I'm surprised didn't, you didn't get this, special appearance by Angela Lansbury. Uh, oh. oh. I guess because she died. So, <laughs> Angela. Um, that was tough. That was really difficult. Yeah. It, no, it's definitely difficult. I think Ryan John, I, I, this was after the fact, after they filmed, obviously, so it doesn't really make sense. They would have already had the contracts written for, you know, who gets the with and and. But Ryan Johnson said Dave Bautista was like, particularly a surprise he said uh when i was writing duke's character in the men's rights streamer i was picturing a scrawny dude who's trying to overcompensate but when batista was brought up i was instantly so smitten by the idea i was a very big fan of his dramatic chops as an actor um, and he said he really delivered he even said that he agrees that he's the best wrestler turned actor so take 100%. that dwayne the rock johnson 100 <laughs> percent cena yeah both of them suck <laughs> you know I who's the say- best wrestler turned actor rowdy roddy piper he appears in john carpenter's they live you guys would hate it it's a horror <laughs> film but check it out what about what about that guy who played the giant in princess bride andre the giant yeah <laughs> <laughs> the giant uh- while we're referencing other movies, we have one final voice note to play. This is from my favorite guest. Don't tell anyone else I said this. Um, Jesse, who, you know, was talking about the main inspiration for Glass Onion. Um, we can just take a listen to this. Hey, everybody. It's Jesse. I know you're probably sick of my voice, but I couldn't let a discussion about Glass Onion go on without a reference to one of my favorite movies. It's a 1973 movie called The Last of Sheila. Its fingerprints are all over Glass Onion, and Ryan himself has even admitted it. 
Honestly, I don't even want to mention it because I sort of want to gatekeep it forever, but it's so good, so I think it needs to be watched. This is the only screenplay ever written by Stephen Sondheim, who wrote it with Anthony Perkins, based on the game nights they used to have. The movie begins with the death of Sheila in a hit and run. A year later, her wealthy husband invites a group of friends to spend a week on his yacht playing a murder mystery game that becomes all too real. I don't want to give anything away, but Glass Onion borrows a lot of its best mystery beats from Sheila, even giving Sondheim a cameo in the movie, his last, I think. If you Google images from the movie, there's a great photo of all the friends, including Diane Cannon and a young Ian McShane, that is very reminiscent of the photo from Glass Onion, and that's all I'm going to say about that. It's very, very 70s, but it's a lot of fun, and if you like the murder mystery aspect of Glass Onion, then you should definitely check out The Last of Sheila. Thanks, everybody. So we have one more uh, Knives Out movie coming out, guaranteed, because Netflix paid for two. Um, we don't know exactly what it's going to be about. Ryan Johnson has said that he wants it to be uh, taking place in America. He said there's a lot of tempting things going on. There, There's a lot of tempting things of going to Paris or the Alps, but I feel like it's really important that these are American movies. Even with Glass Onion, it's set overseas, but it's a group of Americans who are trapped on an island together. So bringing it back somewhere closer to the home, I think would be a good thing for the next one. What I appreciate about this is that, you know, we already have a jet-setting murder mystery with an all-star cast through the White Lotus franchise. And so I'm kind of glad that, you know, Glass Onion isn't just becoming another White Lotus by also going to a mysterious island. It is funny because Jamie Lee Curtis, quote, tweeted a photo of Kate Hudson in her bikini walking to the pool and being like, just so you know, we were freezing in Massachusetts filming the first Knives Out <laughs> movie. Um, so sorry to the next cast of the next Knives Out movie, but you might also be freezing and not get an island vacation to Greece. I mean, I'll just say my, uh, and I, I will say I'm stealing this idea from Twitter. I did not come up with it myself, but the, uh, the sequel that I am personally rooting for this is a tweet I'm just going to read. It says, A Knives Out where Benoit Blanc is surrounded by a bunch of suspicious hot gay men would be the most chaotic movie to ever exist. <laughs> Starring Jonathan Bailey and Joel Kim Booster. Sign oh, yes. <laughs> I'm into that, especially because both Knives Out and Glass Onion have Benoit Blanc making a connection to a very kind-hearted woman, you know, but I'm kind of, like, sick of that little connection. Like, it's sweet. Mm. I really like his connection to Ana de Armas' character and his connection to Janelle Monae's character, but re-watching Knives Out and hearing Benoit Blanc say, oh, it's because you have a good heart. Your good heart is what let you... Like, I'm kind of sick of this whole, mm. oh, these women that I'm helping find their wronged killer for you know like let's do something else now but the gay men the suspicious gay men aren't trying to seduce Blanc are they because he's taken by <laughs> Hugh Grant so he, Hugh Grant needs to be there with him so yeah look like, I told you I wanted more Hugh Grant in the movie yeah they need to they need to be together in the in the sequel so they can be like our love is too strong <laughs> <laughs> there is also some internet speculation um I really don't like this somebody wants the third Knives Out movie to be a prequel because Catherine Hahn mentioned some case of a ballerina that Benoit Blanc solved and they're like oh they could do that case but like that yeah. seems silly also because this was such a moment of COVID like 
now doing a prequel to COVID seems weird to me. Like, I think we should just, you know, keep going in chronological time order, please. Uh, well, to wrap things up, let's relate this back to, you know, what brought us here in the first place, Knives Out. It was a murder mystery that came out in 2019. They actually released it one week early um, in select theater, so I went to a pre-screening of it, not to brag or anything like that. Um, but before the movie, actually, Ryan Johnson came on the screen, like, pre-recorded segment being like, thanks so much for coming out to this pre-screening. You all should have gotten posters when you walked in. If you have a sticker on the back of that poster, you are the murderer. So go to, you know, the cash register at the end of the movie and you'll get a prize. And the prize was the My House, My Rules, My Coffee mug from the movie. So it was a very fun theatrical experience. But how do y'all think Glass Onion compares? You like it more, like it less? What is the final verdict? Granted, I did not see Knives Out in a theater. Maybe that would have changed my opinion, but because I had the theater experience of Glass Onion, and I think in general I just liked Glass Onion a little bit more, so I'm voting for Glass Onion. I definitely liked the first one better. I mean, there's a lot of reasons I liked it better just personally. I think it was definitely more of a murder mystery at the heart of the film. You were left guessing and guessing and guessing who could it be, what's going to happen next, and then there was some pretty climactic moments at the end, like when Chris Evans kind of gets outed that it's him, and then he tries to stab the main character, but it's like a retractable knife. Like, <laughs> I thought that was I – th- I just remember gasping a lot and having a lot of fun in that one. Plus, how could you hate a movie that's set in Massachusetts? I knew it. Oh. I knew this was Massachusetts <laughs> bias. <laughs> I, I love that it was in my home state. That's all I can say. So – I just have more fond memories of that one, and I should really rewatch it again soon. Not to contribute to the Massachusetts bias, but I had Yay. so much fun watching Last Onion, but I do think I liked the original Knives Ooh. Out better. I, I'm, I'm Team Mike. I like Last right. Onion better. I had an issue with Knives Out when that, like, I watched it in LA. There was so much LA marketing and billboards were like, you'll have no idea who did it. You're never going to guess who did this murder mystery. And then when I was watching the movie and 20 minutes in the movie, you find out what happened. I was a little taken aback. And then I was kind of, I felt like I was almost rereading the movie more while watching it than I did with Glass Onion. Where with Glass Onion, you know, you're just kind of watching it unfold and it felt more fun that way. Um, But What's great about the two movies is that they're so different, you know, and like they're not what you would especially expect from a murder mystery. So are you saying that if you didn't live in L.A. and see all the advertising for it, that you would have liked the first Knives Out better? I I definitely think so. I think the marketing (laughs) and the hype really, really got to me. And another thing I'll say is that what made Knives Out special was like after it came out, people were discussing this like, uh, you know, re-rise of the mid-budget movie where you have like you know a tier of all-star like a b-level actor tier of all-star casts you know you're not casting marvel i guess you are <laughs> with chris evans uh, exactly but, you did, yeah. um you know it was just like it was the it was this you know celebration of having this mid-budget movie make so much money with an original idea and it felt a little scrappier where when netflix then paid 450 million dollars for these two movies, I was like, oh, this feels much less scrappy. And now all these actors obviously want to be in a Knives Out movie. So it's just kind of become its own franchise already, which is great. I love these movies, but I think that 
it might sour opinions on the movies as they go on. And for the record, I hope there's even more than three. I don't know if Netflix will pay for a fourth with, you know, how it's doing with everything. But I would love it if just every couple of years, a different streaming service pays for two more movies, two more movies, (laughs) until Ryan Johnson is like, all right, you know what? I think we're done. (laughs) So before we go, I just wanted, you know, like to share one final thought that we hadn't touched on up until this point. But something that I particularly loved about this film, too, that I guess also uh, pushes it over the edge for me is the soundtrack. And not only because it has just like some of my favorite music, right? David Bowie, The Beatles, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Bee Gees. Like, I love all of that music, but I thought it was used so well. Like, the needle drops felt like they had a real purpose to them. As opposed to I hate when other films just throw in like popular music for the sake of popular music. I'm particularly reminded of um, another movie with a funny name, Licorice Pizza, which I thought (laughs) had the worst needle drops in all of history and desecrated David Bowie with the usage of his. It was horrible. It was horrible. I didn't um, hate it. I thought it was fine. <laughs> no, it was the worst usage. It was so bad the way they used the <laughs> Bowie music in that movie. Um, and also I heard that in, in an interview Edward Norton did, he said him and Janelle Monet, because uh, Edward Norton is a huge Bowie fan, apparently there's like a deleted scene where they recorded the two of them singing Moon Age Daydream um, karaoke style. And I like, I wish... It could be in the film. I think they recorded it like at the Glass Onion Bar. Um, so maybe we'll get a director's cut. Who knows? But that's everybody my... wants to do a director's cut these days. It's oh tough God. when it's on Netflix. Yeah, like, no, it is. Is Netflix gonna release that? I don't know. We well, I hope they release the, the deleted cut scene. of the Irishman. <laughs> that would be great. My final thought is just that I loved how they. Um, disparaged the board game clue in this game i also as a board game lover did do not like clue oh clue is the best i love great representation in cinema (laughs) clue is a basic game you gotta play something more elevated i've been playing i've been playing clue since i was a child that was like when when my cousin okay michael if you want if you want a true deception bluffing game play some coup oh coup that'll so harden good. you up real fast all i'm saying children is that every christmas when my cousins were in town we always played clue i have very fond memories i played settlers of Catan on christmas this year are you Catan, happy honestly kind of weak oh shit oh my god all right before we get too much into dissing too many games <laughs> i think we can wrap things up there um K- shreya thank you for joining us on this uh special edition of chaos on the set do you want to share any of your handles or where people can find you are you looking up your letterbox right now yes <laughs> <laughs> oh she has to re-download the letterbox app to oh, try and figure Lord. out where her letterbox username is apparently letterbox isn't working right now so oh true it's, yeah, it's not working here let me see if i can find well you. if she can't remember it maybe don't follow her <laughs> mike are you gonna threaten her with something yeah i'm gonna threaten her with uh the candlestick in the conservatory <laughs> Shreya, you now know what it's like to be me, and it's awful. Yeah, Letterboxd is down. I can't get in. So um, oh. you'll figure it out. <laughs> Shreya's Letterboxd. <laughs> Mike, how can people find you? You can follow me on Letterboxd at mricardi. You can follow me on Letterboxd at marate3. She did it so anyway, Mike. You were supposed Mike. to share it. Mike is now going to hurt you. Okay, where are you on the internet? With the candlestick. 
Um, you can find me on Twitter at Kate underscore Wyatt. I'm not as brave as Shreya. You can't find me on Letterboxd, even though I have one, because Mike said he would beat me over the head with a candlestick. <laughs> you can't reuse the joke I just made. <laughs> Listen, I have a migraine. Leave me be. Yeah. You can follow me on Twitter at MicroMarate. You can follow me on Letterboxd at TruthyMarate if it ever comes back up. It'll probably be back up by the time this is released. But anyway, you can follow our podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd on all three. We are at Chaos on the Set.